This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Johan. Dr. Sharifa Munira Alatas is a retired academician who believes that universities should be a hub for political discourse and a place to liberate minds. However, this cannot be truly achieved so long as the UUCA or AUKU, the Universities and Universities Colleges Act, is still in place, nor when education is guarded and gatekept by the ruling elite. And this is exactly what I'm going to be unpacking on today's episode with Dr. Sharifa. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sharifa. How are you? Thank you, Dashran. I'm well, thank you. Could you start by telling me about yourself and why you decided to become an academician and a lecturer? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, let me start by saying that I was a very, very average student in school, okay, in Singapore, uh, which is where I grew up. I was never in the top 10 in class. Uh, I was always somewhere in the middle of the class of about 40. Not bad, I suppose, but uh, definitely not a straight A student. Right. Um, I studied a lot more than, than my peers in class, mainly because I felt I was always trailing behind them. But, you know, this was never an issue at home. Uh, my parents were, they were never really particular about exams or results and about being a top student. They were particular more about us reading, exploring the intellect, asking right. questions, and, and having good discussions at the dinner table. That was always a, a very important aspect of, of our family life. Um, both my parents encouraged us to, to talk at the dinner table. So in a nutshell, I am quite sure it's growing up in a home like that, that valued reading, discussions uh, and challenging the mind, which which drew me to a career at the university. My father, as you know, was was an intellectual. Right. Uh, and both my parents brought us up to think and, and to be curious about everything. And of course, we, my, my siblings and I were, were, of course, free to decide what we wanted to pursue as a, as a career. But naturally, I think all three of us just gravitated to academia. You brought up how you were always encouraged to explore the intellect, um, but you were never someone who, you know, was always getting um, straight A's and, and things like that. What does exploring the intellect mean? Because I think there is a common sort of misconception that exploring the intellect and getting straight A's is one of the same. One doesn't go to the university to get a job eventually. One goes to the university to learn how to live your life, to think in, in, in a crisis situation, not to rehash facts and figures that they learned at the university. So, you know, that, that's my short answer. You go to the university to learn how to live a life rather than learn about a specific career. Let's move to the current situation in Malaysian public mm -hmm. universities. We have legislation such as AUKU. Um, of course, we had, a, we had a town hall recently discussing that, whether it should be abolished or not. But we have legislation that prevents, that puts stipulations on how to explore the intellect. Now, um, you know, this brings up the question of what is the purpose uh, of a university? The university, uh, they are supposed to be safe spaces for 
for intellectual exploration. They are places where lecturers and students are supposed to participate in debates, in critical thinking, probing research. I mean, this is all part of the exploration of the intellect. Right. You know, asking what if and, and why questions. So from a nation building or policy perspective, universities are meant to offer different analytical angles to any crisis, you know, or suggestions on on how to avoid uh, future socio-political or economic crises, or even offer solutions to these problems. So, you know, I'm, I'm speaking from a social science uh, perspective because this is my training. But based on what I just said, uh, it is obvious that you know, students and lecturers at universities must be free to intellectually explore. One cannot be mentally chained, you know, by by many of these legislatures uh, that that I mentioned, Aoku, which you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, one cannot be mentally chained and then be told, uh, okay, now find a solution to our current problems, uh, <laughs> for example, with ethnic polarization. And while you're doing it, Please, you cannot read book A or invite person B to <laughs> campus or watch movie C in class to, to seek student perspectives because AUKU prevents it or, or Act 605 does not allow for it. Dr. Sharifat, recently the government has given plenty of reasons not to abolish AUKU completely, namely that it's a very layered law that affects so many stakeholders and elements, including the administration of universities. Um, The government says that they're willing to make provisions to bring about academic freedom and freedom for students to have political debate, etc., What are your thoughts on this, especially given that this administration, this government is being led by Pakatan Harapan, who for years and years have campaigned on the platform that they will be abolishing AUKU? Off the bat, abolishing AUKU is what we all hope will happen. It cannot be done overnight, but at least the discourse about uh, towards that end has to begin. And in fact, it, it did begin in 2018, with, just after GE 14, when uh, that the former uh, Masli Malik, you know, the former um, education minister, right. he started the ball rolling. It's just that uh, 22 months later, the government fell, and um, that was that. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, abolishing Alku, one has to have the political will. And the head of government, which is the prime minister himself or herself in the future, will have to have the will to abolish it and see the reasons why it has to be abolished. You recently attended a town hall held by the higher education ministry. What was the experience like and what was it specifically that prompted you to write an essay, an analysis about it on Malaysia Kini? The April 6th town hall. Yes. Right. Okay. I listened. I actually listened to the town hall mm-hmm. online. Uh, it was live streamed. Um, okay. How was it? Well, it was no <laughs> surprise, really. I expected it um, to be what it actually was, a, a talk down or listen to us session, as I as I wrote in my Malaysia Kini piece. Uh, but, you know, it, it's no surprise because many previous town halls have been uh, the same. Um the recent one ended up being a, a session basically to update us on on why Alku is a good thing, 
and why it should not be abolished. Um, although uh, the ministry actually had advertised it as a as a sort of a, a platform to collect uh, relevant input from students and lecturers. So myself, I, and, and I'm sure many others, were hoping for a frank discussion. Uh, I personally was hoping they would focus on uh, specifically three issues. Um, mm -hmm. The first being what freedom of expression really means to students and lecturers, mm -hmm. you know, from an intellectual and, and critical perspective. I was hoping that ministry officials would would learn from us to see our perspective. Um, secondly, I, I was hoping authorities would would listen to our perspective as to um, as to why academic freedom is is important in any university, and this includes uh, student groups being in charge of their own finances and and their own uh, freedom to organize activities such as public talks, even if they are political in nature. Okay, the third issue I, I was hoping would come up was um, about the desires of students and lecturers. You know, right. what they are, are proposing does not mean that they want to threaten political or national stability. Freedom of speech or university autonomy in our context today does not automatically translate into disruptive activism or, or violent demonstrations or plots to overthrow the government. You know, we are aware that the authorities probably have their own understanding of these three issues uh, due to our own history, you know, in the past. Uh, but we hope that, that at least I hope, that the recent town hall was to hear students and lecturers' point of view. And, and, and this unity government should have organized it uh, with this spirit in mind. But instead, it, it was, you know, dominated by we know better narratives. There was a, a constant reiteration by, by the authorities, especially after students spoke at the mic, of the need to retain Alku. You know, uh, what would have been more productive is to thrash out debates, uh, of course, politely and calmly, about how students and lecturers would put academic freedom to good use or how, how the ministry felt about why freedom should be curbed. You know, this is the meaning of, of a town hall or, or constructive dialogue. It was also quite a patronizing session, actually. I noticed that there were attempts to belittle the students, right. especially the female ones, you know, by, by jokingly encouraging them to be brave, uh, not to be shy when expressing themselves. You know, patronizing statements like this to to deflect from the seriousness of the subject matter. You've been an academician and lecturer in Malaysia for many, many years prior to your, your recent um, retirement. What is the reality on the ground faced by lecturers and students alike because of laws like AUKU? I was also a tutor uh, and a teaching assistant for, for a few years in the US right. in the 1980s and 90s. Even though it was not for a very long time, I, I got an idea of teacher-student dynamics, um, the freedom that professors had, and, and the hands-off policies of, of the faculty and, and university administration with regards to uh, lecturers and student activities. Um, my experience was at, at Columbia University, which incidentally has a history with 
very well-known student movements. And, and also, um, Columbia has a history of producing, even today, excellent scholarship. Right. There is freedom of speech. Their professors do not clock in. This has certainly not impacted the quality of their teaching or publications or their research output. output. I need to give two perspectives, first from the lecturer's perspective and and second from the student right. perspective. Um, from the lecturer's perspective in our public universities, uh, the, the reality on the ground is mainly one of fear. Um, to, to say apathy or laziness, uh, you know, uh, that the lecturers are apathetic or lazy is only partially correct. Um, maybe over the decades, many lecturers have become lazy or seat warmers, but this is the result of decades of oppressive policies which suppress intellectual creativity. Right. So it is fear of facing, basically the fear is about facing disciplinary action by the head of department or, or the dean or or the chancellery. Um, fear of being put in cold storage for being too critical. Fear of, of not being promoted. Again, from a lecturer's perspective, Act 605 uh, has resulted in intellectual inertia, okay? And right. which we, you know, popularly say uh, apathy. Um, we must also remember that 605 um, falls under AUKU legislation. Uh, so the university board of directors have the disciplinary authority over university lecturers and employees. Now, uh, the second point I want to address is from a student perspective. Right. What's the reality on the ground? AUKU has forced them to play safe mm -hmm. and to focus only on the employability after graduation, passing exams, uh, doing anything to get good grades, a general absence of, of the desire to explore outside acceptable boundaries. Now, during my career here at the public university, right. the general student body has been, I must say, generally mentally insipid uh, because of this. Uh, again, I'm, I'm not attributing this to some innate laziness or apathy. Okay, There, there may be some of this, yes, indeed, but largely it's, it's a lack of encouragement to explore outside the box. The higher education minister sometime in January this year, he, he mentioned uh, what he envisaged as the model, I think he said, the model campus life for students. And he, he referred to how students, while still in university, could, could actually make an effort to earn a small income by engaging in entrepreneurship, initiating startups. Uh, so all this is good. This is very good advice. But what he left out of his message right. was that AUKU cannot remain in place while at the same time you expect students to be intellectually exploratory mm -hmm. or, or curious right. or, you know, in this sense, to build character. Seeking new knowledge is basic to an entrepreneurial mind. So uh, it all goes back to, to AUKU again. On the show with me today is Dr. Sharifa Munira Alata. She's an academician. After the break, we discuss the implications of government intervention or censorship on the quality of research and education. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9.
Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dr. Johan, and on the show with me today is Dr. Sharifa Munira Alatas. She's an retired academician, and we're talking about freedom for universities and students. So, Dr. Sharifa, what do you think is the role of universities in promoting intellectual freedom and critical thinking? Such important questions. Um, you know, we have to look at this whole AUKU issue and, and political interference in our public universities uh, within the global um, and the national hub, so to speak. Right. Okay. Um, if we go back in history globally, the 1960s was a, a very tumultuous decade. All right. The, there were widespread student protests uh, in Europe, in, in the U.S., in Japan, in India. I mean, we all know very well um, about Woodstock, you know, what, what Woodstock was all about. Um, it, many students attended it in 1969. Um, and then I mentioned earlier Columbia University and many other universities in the U.S., such as Berkeley, uh, Boston University, even Harvard, um, they, they made headlines because of their student movements. Um, the Vietnam War was controversial, okay? And many, many student groups were against it on moral grounds. So there were also many high-profile assassinations during the 60s, which, which um, impacted students in universities, right. even in Japan and, um, as I mentioned earlier. Now, in Malaysia, at that time, Malaya, okay, in the 1930s to about the 1950s, there was a profound youth awakening of sorts, um, which was part of a very active student anti-colonial resistance. Right. Um, and in fact, um, for all anyone who's interested listening in, Syed Hussein Ali has, has elaborated on this in, in his book. Uh, I think he published it in, in 2018, A People's History of Malaysia. According to him, student political consciousness emerged in the universities as a reaction to inadequate education provided to the Malays under British colonial rule. Later on in, in 49, when the university was constructed by the British um, University Malaya in Singapore, actually then, um, and then later a campus was built in KL, which is the present University Malaya, you know, the, the U, UM Students' Union emerged. Um, they initially focused their attention on student welfare and other campus ma uh, matters, not, not national politics. Um, it was only during the late 60s, student activists began to voice their concerns, right. um, basically about peasants and workers and, and international issues such as Vietnam as well. Mm -hmm. And the Middle East conflict figured very importantly. Um, so, and, and an interesting point about these student movements it, it only 2% of the total student body at UM then was involved in student societies or student union. Less than half of this 2% were radical activists. Right. So, so what I'm suggesting is that the government today should accept that student activism is part and parcel of any country's history and our history, our country's history, and university life. Politicians should not feel irrationally threatened by this. You know, to make a long story short, um, it makes sense to abolish it because it's part of an oppressive cocktail of legislature 
meant solely to control all forms of consciousness and activism. In 2014, right. um, Aoku was indirectly responsible for the suspension of, I think, five or six uh, UM students after they invited Anwar Ibrahim to speak <laughs> at the campus without the university's approval. Right. Um, they were charged under UM's uh, discipline of students' rules, I think. Um, th this discipline of students' rules actually empowers Aoku in the sense that it enables university administration to continue applying draconian laws. Okay, so when I say empowers Aoku, what I mean is that the fundamental idea that student activities must be micromanaged and controlled is also enshrined in Aoku. So this fundamental is then reinforced within university administrative uh, regulations. In 2010, during a by-election campaign in Hulu Slango, a few uh, second-year political science students from UKM were charged by the university under Section 15 of Aoku. Right. And uh, as we know, Section 15 pro uh, prohibits students from participating or expressing uh, sympathy or support for any political party. Um, at, the students were observing the Hulu Slango by-election campaign process, um, and they, they went in two vehicles. Uh, they were stopped by police and held until the UKM Student Affairs Department uh, officials arrived. The police then searched the vehicles and found flyers and uh, video CDs that were, um, you know, probably placed there by by a member of the political party who accompanied these students during the the, the drive around, you know, um, the day's campaign. Um, the students were then brought into the Ulu Slango um, police headquarters for questioning, and they were held for nine hours. Fortunately, they were eventually released on bail. And a few days later, the, the police um, mentioned that they were no longer interested to pursue the matter and they had dropped the investigation. Um, so, you know, I see this, this 2010 incident as, as an exercise in intimidation, if nothing else. Uh, it, was, it was assumed that these political science students were party sympathizers the university did not consider that they might have attended the by-election for academic research or to gain fieldwork experience. You know, after all, they are political science students. You know, you brought up academic research. What are the implications of government intervention or censorship on the quality of research and education in Malaysian universities? Yeah, it has basically changed the outlook and function of the university lecturer. It, it is... It is, you know, for lack of a better word, it is insulting when politicians entice the university, you know, um, dangle top administrative posts or lucrative um, positions to professors uh, in return for their political flattery. Academics also have no principles or genuine commitment to academia. You know, those that that follow the, uh, to, uh, that succumb to such flattery um, they are willing to extend patronage to politicians uh, for their own selfish benefit. So because of this dynamic, it is, it is common for 
politicians to micromanage or micro control the university using AUKU and, and 605. Um, but, you know, let me make the, the following important points. Um, you know, the long term, the way I see it is that the long term tragedy for the country, even if AUKU and Act 605 disappear, okay, mm -hmm. the long term tragedy lies with the academics themselves. Um, even if there if there was academic freedom on campus today, okay, from tomorrow onwards, let's say, right, um, there is still rampant self censorship. When you couple this with the proliferation of 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 non non productive and intellectual lightweights <laughs> that are walking the corridors of our public universities, it makes no difference with or without draconian laws. I will say this, it has become increasingly difficult to find scholars in our public universities, despite the thousands of PhDs churned out annually. Instead, what we have are academics uh, whose main contribution is to teach, to imitate the research of others, to rehash work that has already been published by others. And, and they are smug when they obtain university-funded research projects knowing very well that they have tweaked and reworded past research projects. You know, the, the stubborn inertia, the internal inertia that has resulted in academics, they, they shy away from speaking out on issues that matter to the nation. You know, it's a, it's a you say um, jump, I ask how high culture at the universities. Right. So what types of discussions are not happening in universities, either because of, you know, UUCA or because of self-censorship? I'm wondering, do discussions like uh, such as political discussions in, in our public universities, are they constrained to the quote-unquote neoliberal capitalist outlook of politics? Um, are there freedom and you know, sort of room for lecturers um, to mm. talk about different types of economic models, for example, or socioeconomic models that could radically transform the nation. Um, because you brought up America, right? And America is the king of capitalism and, and all of these things, right? But there is the fact that you brought up where their universities are often very open in the sense that you can find, um, you know, professors in um, universities in the U.S. that talk about Marxist literature, for example, and, and things like that. What are the discussions not happening in Malaysian universities? Very good question. Again, to put all that in, in, one, in one sentence, what is not happening in universities is scholar activism. Right. Okay. Um, today, most most lecturers do not publicly speak or write about their academic freedom or, or their lack of freedom to be political on campus. I've been doing it, but I'm the exception. And, you know, um, a very, you know, <laughs> sorry kind of exception in the sense that um, I have felt isolated. Right. But, you know, I it's part of my innate desire to be a scholar activist um, because I, I love the university. I love um, academes so much. The, the, the thing is most do not form active associations on campus or, or speak up against these impositions on freedom. Um, 
lecturers are also not publicly outraged. Um, for instance, if a book or a scholar is banned from campus. Right. Um, however, in the U.S., they would be, um, you know, or, or even in India, they would be. Mm-hmm. In general, there is widespread indifference and silence. Um, in in my in my experience, you know, since I've I began my career here in in the nineties, um, perceptions of academic freedom on our campuses actually have been about the freedom to apply their own teaching methods, for example, or to decide on their own research topics. Um, as long as they weren't, you know, deemed not too sensitive. Autonomy to them um, is also articulated as the freedom to come into office at whatever time they they choose or to leave at whatever time they want. But of course, by the way, today, uh, even that freedom has been taken away. Lecturers are now treated as factory workers and are forced to clock in and, and, and out. Um, so overall, what what is not being discussed is open discourse uh, or out of the box or radical views, as you said, you know, Marxist approaches to to certain policies. Why not pros and cons uh, on social issues? Lively lecturer and student initiated speakers corners are not happening. Inviting controversial speakers for the sake of diversifying knowledge, you know, it's not happening. And what is being discussed? Uh, or rather, it is not being discussed why these things are not happening. So most most importantly, what is not being discussed is how knowledge seeking is a basic human right and right. that universities and professors need this freedom to explore. And this is not being discussed. Do you think that this is um, part of the perhaps like over the past 40 years, a, a sort of technocratic, neoliberal approach to, to governing society and, and education, where, you know, you, you talk about how knowledge-seeking is a human right, but people don't look at things that way anymore. People seem to think that, you know, I, I just go to school, keep my heads down, listen, do my homework, get as many grades as I can, good grades, and then I will get a job. Right, it's mm. it's fundamentally education has been uh, transformed. I I believe over the past forty years, especially into just what do I need to study, or mm. and to get a job at the end of the day, which is not to say not important, right? It's ex- exceptionally important to get a get get jobs and whatnot. Um, but rather than you know, education supposed to be perhaps this hub that liberates your minds, that once you go into universities, especially, you become like politically conscious citizens that understand how the world works, that mm. understand a power in society, and hopefully um, is, is prompted to challenge powers in society. Yeah, I mean, there is definitely that has been happening and it will continue uh, and it's not just happening in Malaysia. It's it's a global phenomenon. It's a global uh, tragedy, in fact, or crisis. But I think there, there are a substantial number of people who are recognizing this, mm-hmm. at least um, outside of Malaysia, and trying to bring back the narrative that, um, as I mentioned earlier, that universities or a university education is not about equipping you to get a job. It's about teaching you how to live a life. 
Right. You know, I can't stress enough that one doesn't go to the university to learn how to get a job. And then you 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 graduate and then, you know, hey, presto, you're going to get a job after <laughs> that. Because as we know, there are many unemployed graduates. And right. why are they unemployed? They have the credentials. We need to find out what are the shortcomings about society outside of the university that employers are um, unhappy about. With all the graduates at their fingertips, why are they still not employing them? So, you know, my answer to that is universities are not meant to go to because you are looking for a job later. You're learning how to live your life. And I think parents have to understand this as well. And it, it, it goes back to your very first question as to why I chose mm -hmm. academia. Uh, it's because my parents, both of them, instilled that value in us, in my, myself and my, my siblings. Um, we need to learn the values on how to live your life. Yeah, that, that's basically my answer, uh, Dashran. In recent years, Dr. Sharifa, we've seen private universities, for example, universities like Taylor's, Monash and, and whatnot, open their doors for political programs and discourse. I'm wondering if this will further impact the academic and intellectual divide between the haves and the have-nots. Aoku uh, does not apply to private universities, right? Mm -hmm. all right? Uh, but as long as we, as long as as there are universities in Malaysia willing to embrace academic freedom and and freedom of speech of students and lecturers, maybe the public sector will have to step up and listen to the private universities. Uh, however, let let me. I do have some criticisms of of the private university yes, sector please. as well. Um, they too insist on on unproductive. Uh, well, in the sense of. Um, generating knowledge, that's why I use the word unproductive, but the corporate culture, such as clocking in, um, that there is an obsession with worshipping uh, the, the global university ranking. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for me, in my opinion, this is counterproductive and equally as intellectually stifling. Um, however, universities like Taylor's, they have the right attitude in terms of recognizing that students need to, to be intellectually free in order to progress. So yes, uh, our public universities have a lot to learn about the divide. Well, if there happens to be such a divide and, and an expanding one, so be it. Maybe that's what we need to to jolt uh, the public system into um, rationalizing why AUKU needs to be abolished. I mean, part of the reform process. And on that note, Dr. Sharifa, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Dashran, for having me. That was Dr. Sharifa Munira Alatas, formerly of University Kebangsaan Malaysia, currently a visiting professor at the Political Science Department of the Indonesian International Islamic University in Jakarta. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We are available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever we get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.